just want to give you a heads up what's coming in August. Uh, uh, next week is going to be our last week in the Gospel of Mark. And I know a lot of you said, didn't think it would ever happen. You know, we started when Jesus left, and then we just continued ever since. And you thought that was it, but we are actually finishing next week. And so then uh, what's happening is the next week after that, we're doing a short uh, two-week series. And uh, you didn't think we knew how to do that, but we do. And... Uh, <laughs> It's called The Unhurried Life. Uh, and so this is a, a series, that week that we start this series is the week LA Unified goes back to school. So it's kind of the end of the, the school. I'm still getting used to that, with, you know, August the 12th, starting the end of the start of the fall. But uh, we're, we're, we're heading back into the fall. And so with fall comes busyness, uh, uh, life change, and so on. And so we want to have a couple weeks where we just help you prepare for what does it look like to live life intentionally in this very busy culture? How do we make our priorities stand out? Uh, what does it look, how does God design life to live? And so we're doing something that's very rare for us. We're actually having in a guest speaker that weekend. And some of you who've been here forever uh, may remember him. He was actually on staff, I don't know, 20, 30, 80 years ago, something. But his name is uh, Alan Fadling. And Alan was like a junior high pastor. Uh, some of you will know him. He he's, uh, works with our college ministry every once in a while in the summers with Elevate. And uh, Alan's coming in. He's actually written a book. He's, a, he's, he's no longer a pastor of a church. He kind of leads a leadership organization for, to help leaders. And he's written this book called The Unhurried Life. And it's published by InterVarsity Press, which is a major Christian publisher. And uh, we've had him here back in uh, May to speak to our life group leaders. And it was so helpful. So we'd like to bring him back for the whole church. So it's going to be a little different. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Instead of having the normal format where he actually speaks, we're going to interview him, sort of Oprah style. And so uh, Dave Cox, one of our senior pastors, was actually called into the ministry through Alan Fadling. And so Dave uh, and, and Alan are close, and so Dave's going to be up here on stage, and we're just going to ask about some questions about the unhurried life. He's going to teach off of those questions. So it's a great thing to invite uh, friends to, uh, especially non-believers, because who doesn't need to learn how to live an unhurried life in our culture, right? A very easy on-wrap, and so inside your program, you actually have an invite card like this that we use to invite people to new series. And if you need more of these, they're out on the patio at the uh, point afterwards. But I'd encourage you to put this up on your refrigerator and be praying like, God, is there anyone that you want me to invite? That's a great, a great deal. So uh, it's going to be a two-week series. First week, we'll interview Alan. Second week, we'll follow up with some teaching on practical. Okay, how do you take those principles and put them into practice? And so that's going to be great. And then the third weekend, um, we're starting a brand new series. We don't have the artwork finished yet for that, so it's not on the screen. But uh, I'll be kicking off that series, and it's called the Genesis Chronicles. And we're going to be studying uh, over the fall Genesis 1 through 3. It's actually a trilogy of series on the opening chapters of Genesis. If you've ever studied that, uh, Genesis 1 through 3 is much like the opening chapters of a novel, that in the opening chapters, the, the author introduces the key characters, the key events, and sets up the whole story. And the first three chapters of Genesis are very much like that. We meet the key characters, the key conflicts, the plot line that's going to be worked out in all the Bible. And so it's a very easy way to get into the story of the whole Bible, entering through that door of Genesis 1 through 3. And it's extremely practical as we talk about creation issues 
issues. We talked about, uh, we talked about marriage issues, sexuality issues, temptation, careers, a lot of great topics there. And so for this fall, we're doing a trilogy of series, actually three short series uh, on those first three chapters that will take us up through the whole fall. All right, so I'm excited about that. And again, great entry point for new people. So if you've been praying for your one life or what, waiting for a series, hey, this is a great entry point. Uh, uh, that will be another, another one. So we got a couple great opportunities. Uh, like I shared, you know, last night, it's amazing. Last night, uh, as we talked about the resurrection, uh, I gave a chance at the end for people to give their life to Christ. And, and one guy that was here uh, that uh, was, a friend had brought him, it was, catch this, the first time he'd ever been to any church in all his life. Uh, probably about 38 years old, I'm guessing. And last night, uh, he said he prayed to give his life to Christ. Uh, and so we, we just want to be aware of this. This is the, yeah, the, the, this is what we're about as a church. We're sharing this assignment. And that's why we give you his in, invite cards, you know. It's not just to put it up on the refrigerator and pray for him. It is for that. But it's to be saying, God, is there anyone in my life right now? And that's the prayer. Is there anyone in my life right now that you want me to invite? Uh, it's not just kind of random, but to begin to ask the Lord, is there someone that you want, you want to bring? And so be praying about that, okay? We have some great opportunities for that this fall. So uh, we're going to go into our time of teaching in just a minute, but I want to give you a chance to stretch, turn your cell phones off, greet some people around you. So let's stand up and do that. Well, how are you doing today? You doing, doing well? Yeah, it's great to see you. Um, uh, I'm not sure I introduced myself before. I can't remember the services all run together. But my name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors. And if it is your very first time, a uh, special welcome to you. We're glad you're here. We're going to go into our time of teaching now. We normally do this about this time every week. And so inside your program is a green and white uh, message note sheet. You'll definitely want to take that out. That'll help you follow along. And uh, if you guys are all set, ready to go, uh, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready? Yeah. All right, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here. We're thankful for you. We're thankful for what you're doing in our lives. And we want to come under your leadership today in new ways so we can live life the way it's designed to be, that we can thrive and bring you honor that you deserve. And so we pray that you'd come and speak with us, direct us. We pray that when we leave, we'd sense that we've been spoken to and we'd have clear directions for the next step of our journey with you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we're continuing our series that we've been in uh, since the beginning of the year. Uh, you can see it on the screen if you're brand new. It's called Jesus, the Crucified King. And for those of you who are brand new, this is a series uh, on the life and teaching of Jesus as seen through the eyes of one of the leaders of the early movement of Jesus in the first century. His name was Mark. He's a close personal friend of the apostle Peter. So towards the end of Peter's life, he writes down this account of the life and teaching of Jesus based on Peter's firsthand experiences. Now, this is actually the third in a trilogy of series uh, on the Gospel of Mark. And this final series, we've watched as Jesus has come into Jerusalem. It's the last week of his life. Uh, he is arrested late Thursday night. And for the last couple months, we've really been focused in on this last 18 to 24 hours of his life. And so we've watched as Jesus is arrested. He's taken into custody with the, the, the Jewish leaders. There's an emergency session of their high court that's called the Sanhedrin. He's interrogated throughout the night. He's convicted on the charge of blasphemy, which carries with it the, uh, the charge of, uh, of uh, uh, the sentence of death. 
Uh, but since they don't have the power to, to, uh, to do capital punishment under Rome's rule, they take him to the Roman governor, Pilate, who's in town for the Passover city, packed with pilgrims. He's there to keep the peace. So they take him to Pilate. Uh, he's convicted there of the crime, uh, political crime of high treason against Rome. And in the last few weeks, we've watched as that sentence has been carried out, as he's been flogged and then beaten and then uh, nailed to a Roman cross. And then last week, uh, Mark laid out the evidence that showed uh, kind of the credible evidence, the chain of custody of his body, how there was many witnesses there, where there's many women that had been followers of Jesus were there at the cross who witnessed his, ex- his, his death. And then we, we watched as the Roman centurion certified that he was dead, as the, the Roman governor Pilate uh, checked to make sure he was dead. And two of the Jewish aristocrats who were part of the high council, Joseph and Nicodemus, took charge of the body. And then three of the women who had traveled with Jesus that Mark mentions by name actually went with them, two of the three went with him uh, to witness where he was buried. And so Mark kind of is setting up, now that we, we finish the, this account of the, the rest, the execution, the burial of Jesus, and he's painted this picture that now we're ready for the, the kind of the, the great finale, the grand finale, uh, the big surprise, which of course is going to be the resurrection. Now, there on your note sheet, you have a section that's called the resurrection shock and awe. And so today we're going to be looking at the last eight verses of Mark's gospel, but I need to set this up a little bit. Because if you're new to this or you haven't read Mark's gospel in a while, or if you've never read it, this ending comes as a surprise. Because we've been reading the gospel of Mark for a long time now, 15 chapters. And it's this epic account of uh, the coming of the kingdom of God, Jesus coming, the miracles, people realizing who he is, prediction of his death and resurrection, the final execution, this epic uh, account of the life of Jesus. And when you get to this final chapter, what you really expect is that we're going to have this epic description of the resurrection. It's going to be long. It's going to be detailed. It's going to give us information about what happened that first Sunday morning. It's going to talk about the next 40 days and some of the resurrection appearances. It's going to be set up much like Matthew and Luke and John. All right? But when you get there, what you find is that it's this very short ending. And it ends very abruptly in a way that's really surprising. It almost seems anticlimactic, right? And so we're really not sure why Mark's gospel ends this way. Uh, There's a lot of theories. A lot of scholars believe that it had a longer ending, first of all, and that it got lost, that the the end of the final sheet of the scroll got cut off early on, and so we don't have it. Now, if you have your Bibles there and you turn to chapter 16, you will see there is a longer ending. If you look at it, Mark's ending goes through verse 8, and then you notice there's a, kind of a, a big footnote and then, or kind of a big heading note, and then there's this longer ending. And so we're going to talk about that more next week. Why is that there? What does it mean? And so on. But what I want you to catch through now is that most scholars do not believe that that longer ending was originally part of Mark's gospel. That someone early on in the first century who's a follower of Jesus They get to the end of Mark and like, man, there's more to the story that you need to know. And so they go to Matthew and they go to Luke and they go to John and they pull some of the highlight reel out and they tack it on to the end of Mark's gospel, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, imagine you're out in the middle of nowhere. You're sharing the the story of Jesus. All you have is the gospel of Mark. Remember, there's no Bibles. 
And it's like, you're like, hey, they need to know more of the story, what happened next, and so you kind of add it on, and that becomes part of the manuscript. So we'll talk more about that next week, what that means, different theories, and so on. But for today, all I want to do is prepare you for the surprise ending, because if we just kind of jump into it, you get there, you go, that's it? That's it? That's all she wrote? Wow. This guy, you know, he needs uh, English 101 or Greek 101 or something like that. So uh, anyway, so let's uh, take our Bibles. And there in your notes, you see that section, the resurrection, shock and awe. And what we're going to do is we're going to walk through the first uh, uh, the eight verses and then going to come back and make a couple kind of observations, principles for our lives. And so here we go. So uh, when the Sabbath was over, verse one. So let's set this up. Uh, remember, Jesus was uh, arrested, crucified Friday afternoon, fr- Friday morning. He died Friday afternoon at three o'clock. Um, the Sabbath begins in Israel at sundown. So we're in the spring, so sundown's going to come early, you know, 5, five or 5.30, something like that. Um, and so uh, they've only got a couple hours after he dies to get permission from Pilate to take the body down, to, to, uh, to get the body off the cross, to take the corpse uh, to the tomb, and to kind of anoint it with some spices and wrap it up. And so it's just not much time. And so they do kind of an emergency burial, so to speak. They're just going to kind of, kind of do this in a very haphazard way. Uh, because they have to get done by Sabbath, by, 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 by sundown, because you can't work once the sun goes down. And so they do kind of, a, a, kind of a, a temporary burial, if you will, kind of wrap them up. They leave them there. And now we move to Saturday. And so Saturday is probably the worst day of their lives. I mean, you're a follower of Jesus. Uh, you are convinced this guy was the Messiah, the great king of Israel. You're convinced that he was going to overthrow Rome and you were going to rule with him and the kingdom of God was going to come in power. That's what you believe. And now in the, in the matter of 18 to 24 hours, your whole life is blown apart. And, and what you've realized is that he's not the Messiah. Because one thing you know is that Messiahs don't lose, they win. They certainly don't get hung on a Roman cross, which according to the book of Deuteronomy would be under a curse of God. And so your whole world is blown apart. You, you've, you've been deceived, you're confused. And so Saturday, they're all going to spend mourning, weeping, it's, they're, they're depressed, right? They're probably not going to sleep much that night. And so Saturday night, when the Sabbath ends, it ends at sundown, now's the first time they can actually go and give Jesus a proper burial. And so the women are going to go out. They're going to gather some spices that night. It's too late. It's dark now, so they can't go out at night. So what they're going to do is Sunday morning, first thing, first light of dawn, uh, they're going to be up. They probably haven't slept much. They're up. They're sleepy. They're going to be heading out to, uh, to, to anoint the body. Now picture this. As they go out there, they're picturing that they're going out to anoint a corpse, All right? So this is very much like, let's say you're a mortician, and a body came in Friday night, and you had to go to a game with your friends or something, and your day was booked on Saturday. You just kind of stick them in the fridge, right? And you're going to oh, I'll, I'll get it Sunday. I'll get to it Sunday. So this is kind of the scenario. Remember, they were there Friday. They saw where he was laid. There's a stone table there to the right as you come in. He was wrapped up. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had put the 75 pounds of spices. He did kind of a quick, quick and dirty type of burial. Left him there. And so now this is their first opportunity to go back and do it the right way. And so they're going to get up early in the morning, sleepy, tired, and they head off. And so here we go. So when the Sabbath was over, uh, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, they bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Now remember, 
these are the three women that Mark mentioned by name last week at the end of chapter 15. And if you're here last week, remember what I said is that there were many women who witnessed the death of Jesus there at the cross, but Mark highlighted three of them by name. And the reason he highlighted them was because these are the three that are going to be there on Easter morning to become the first witnesses. So he's kind of setting us up for that. And so we, we watched as on Friday, two of the three were at the burial. Salome wasn't there, but on Sunday morning, and she's going to be, these three women are going to be coming back. And so, so very early on the first day of the week, um, uh, what happens is that, uh, verse 2, very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they're on their way to the tomb. And on the way, they're asking one another, oh, no, I forgot about this. Uh, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? So, so remember, this tomb has this huge stone that weighs several hundred pounds. It's like a huge checker, you know, but very thick. And uh, remember, if you were here last week, there's a, this kind of a, a, a trough that's been uh, kind of a, a slot that's been cut out of the limestone uh, in front of the, in front of the, the burial cave. Uh, the burial cave itself, this tomb would be... Um, you know, they're not real big. Maybe think of a small bedroom, like in a home today, like a kid's bedroom, like not a master bedroom, maybe a kid's bedroom, maybe bigger than like Harry Potter's bedroom, but like smaller than a master bedroom, right? And they'd often have a couple of compartments, they're not real big, and they, they'd have a circular hole. They cut it. I've been in these, and you kind of get down, kind of, kind of stoop way down, have to get down in them. And so these stones, you know, they, they'd make the opening small so that you don't have to step a stone that's eight feet tall to cover it. And so, so you'd you have this big stone there, weighs several hundred pounds. It's going to roll downhill into the slot, uh, hit kind of the stop there, and it's there. And so on the way, in the midst of their confusion, their depression, their crying, it's just like they have, like, like who's going to move the stone? You know, I thought you were going to move it. We can't move the stone. And so they're, they're headed, right? So when they get here, here's what's going to happen. When they get there, they're going to see the stone has already been moved away. And of course, this is a little confusing. It's Sunday morning early, like who moved the stone? Like it takes several men at least to, to move the stone. So who moved the stone? And so the first thing that's going to go through your mind is that is the body gone, right? Did someone mess with the body? And so when they get there, it's going to be so weird. And this is so creepy. And I want you to catch this. I want you, I want you to picture this. You get there, sun's coming up. You're about to, st- you're coming, it's like, hey, someone messed with the body? It's weird. Like there's no one here. And so you're going to crawl into a tomb, right, where you left the dead body on Friday. And, and so you're a little bit like, is someone there? Is someone inside? And remember, there's no electricity. It's not like they have lights in these tombs. You're going to be going in with a candle. It's going to be dark. And so they're going to be they're going to kind of coming in. It's a little creepy. Got the dead body, right? And they're coming in. And all of a sudden, they turn, and they look, and over to the right, there's this young dude sitting there in a white robe. Hey! <laughs> they freak out. Like, uh, we'll see it. Uh, in, in, the, in your Bible, it says they were alarmed. <laughs> no, they're not alarmed. They're freaked out. In the Greek, it's like they're freaked out. And you'll see evidence of that. Well, I'm not making this up. And he's like... Oh, don't be alarmed. <laughs> right. It didn't work. Anyway, so, so in uh, verse 4, so when they look up, they're coming towards the tomb, and they saw the stone. And it's, it was very large. It had been rolled away. And so they're just like, well, what, what's going on? Uh, you know, who moved it? 
And so they're now entering the tomb. They're bending over, going into the dark, right? So they've got the candles going and so on. Uh, they, they'd, left the, they'd left the corpse there. They're, they're on Friday. They're expecting the corpse to be there on the stone table. And so they're, they're, uh, they're, they're entering in now. And all of a sudden, they, they see something move on the right side. And they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, which from the other accounts, we would assume would be an angel. And he's sitting there on the right side. And they're alarmed. <laughs> Uh, no, they're freaking out. And so he says, hey, don't be alarmed. Uh, he said, I, I know why you're here. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene. Uh, he was crucified, you know, Friday. Uh, and he's risen. He's not, he's not here. He's, he's, he's alive. He's well. Um, he's not here. See the place where they laid him. And you were here Friday. Look, his body's gone. Uh, and, and so I've got it. You know, Jesus gave me a message to give to you. You're supposed to go and tell his disciples and Peter Remember, we talked about this about six weeks ago. Uh, very cool. Uh, Peter had gone through this uh, horrible experience just 72 hours before that on Thursday night, he had swore to Jesus that no matter what happens, I will never leave you. I'm ready to die for you. And remember then within hours, he had denied any association with Jesus uh, to save his own skin. And Jesus had looked across the plaza with him and locked eyes. and It was the worst moment of his life. Then Jesus had been executed the next day. And so Peter's world has blown apart. Uh, Jesus is not the Messiah. He's been deceived. He's hiding for his life. That night he had cried his eyes out for betraying his friend. Uh, and so Jesus knows this about Peter. And so he tells the angel, hey, I want to meet up with my guys um, back north in Galilee. Make sure Peter knows this invites for him too, because he just knows he's hurting. He, he's not sure. So, and Peter, and we talked about that, the whole sticky note thing we talked about and so on. And so the angel has the message, go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee and there you will see him just as he told you. Thursday night he had told them this after he rose, but of course they didn't know what he was talking about, they'll see him in Galilee. And I want you to catch these next two words. Next two words, it says, trembling and what? Okay, I want you to underline those words. These women are freaking out, right? Uh, like, I don't know if you've ever been really scared like so scared, you're shaking. Uh, I mean, maybe you have. I, I remember once when Linda and I were first married. My, my mom is sort of a practical joker at times, and uh, it got it from her mom. So it's like a generational sin. It's been like passed down <laughs> through the generations, and it's like her mom would scare her out of her mind. Like my, my mom would tell me she was dating. She would come home really late at night. Try to be sneaking in the house, not turning on any lights, go in the bathroom, no lights on. Her mom would hear her coming and go and sit on the toilet in the dark. Uh, <laughs> so she would come in, you know, do her thing. Ah! You know. And so, that's just one of many, one of many. And, and, so, and so my mom inherited this gene, right? So Lynn and I are early married, right? Like I'm 20, 21, whatever. And we go, we go with my folks camping up in the Sierras. And not in the National uh, Park where there's all this, but it's in the National Forest where there's not much happening. You know, it's really dark. And this one night, of course, you're always, you know, there's bears, right? There's bears. I mean, seriously, bears come through your camp. I mean, you have to, you know, it's bear country. And so this one night, 
Like, I, I'm going to go to the bathroom way long ways away at this bathroom, and it's like pitch black. It's dark. And I'm coming back, and my mom's hiding behind a tree. <laughs> and right when I come by, she jumps up. <laughs> she only did it once. Right? I thought I was going to kill her. I was just so afraid and so angry. Right? Like, I was so scared. And... Like, if you've ever been there, you're so afraid you're actually shaking, right? Well, that's what's going on here. I don't want you to miss it. It says, <laughs> you're going, that's a lot of story for one point. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I needed you to get it. Like, like we read, when we read the Bible and it goes like trembling, we go, oh yeah, they're always trembling. Uh, no, no. <laughs> they're trembling for a reason. Like, they are shaking. This, you know, you picture it. You come in, it's creepy, it's dark, a corpse is there, and all of a sudden you see movement, and this guy's going, hey, you know, and the white, and got the white robe on, maybe it's glowing, like glow in the dark guy, you know, it's like, Wah! and so he says, oh, don't worry, you know, it's okay, yeah, right, whatever, and so he says, tremble and bewildered, and I want you to remember those two words, trembling, scared to death, shaking and bewildered, completely confused. No context for this. Like, uh, he's risen, what? I have no context. And so the women went out and they fled from the tomb. They went out running. Now if anything, it doesn't say this, but if I know anything about women, if they are scared to death and running for their lives, they're also screaming, right? <laughs> Like a cartoon, right? Three women. Da -da -da -da, right? Now, and then catch us. This is how the gospel of Mark, as we know it, this is how it ends. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The end. <laughs> Next week, we're starting the gospel of Luke. Uh, like, are you serious? Like for 15 chapters, you've been leading us up to it, and that's it? They're scared to death, running for their lives, and don't tell anyone ever. You know, you can see why scholars believe there's probably a longer ending uh, that, that we don't have. We'll talk more about that next week. But here's, even with this ending as it is, we know several important things. What we know is that remember, and you, if you've been in the series, you notice that, that the last six months of Jesus' life, multiple times, Jesus told his men he was gonna be executed, he was going to be arrested, uh, he was going to be tortured, he was going to be executed, he was going to rise. They had no idea what he was talking about, but Mark has been preparing us for this. And so what Mark is letting us know is that the prophecy was fulfilled, that he did rise. The angel's there, he's telling you he's gone, so he'll, he'll meet you in Galilee, just like he said, the, the tomb is empty, and so the resurrection's taken place. And so uh, in spite of the shortness of the ending, we get the picture. Uh, now, what happened is that uh, of course, we know that later in the day, other things happen in the day. And what, from Matthew, Luke, and John, we'll talk about those later on. But what I want to do today is I just want to highlight for you kind of two really important principles about the resurrection that are extremely important for our lives. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called the resurrection, two important takeaways. And I want to highlight two important kind of principles, thoughts, highlights that are important for us in our lives. And the first one goes like this. Uh, and this one's a little hard for us to grasp. Uh, 
it's a little hard for us emotionally to go back and to get there and to kind of get this. So I want to tease it out some. But what I want you to catch is the resurrection was a surprise. In fact, uh, in, your, in, the, in your margin, I would write, it's a complete surprise. Now, th- this is important, and th- this is hard for us to understand because if you're a longtime Christian, even if you're a brand new Christian, even if you're here and you're not a Christ follower yet, that the resurrection is such a big part of our culture that even if you're not a Christian, you know that Christianity has something to do with the resurrection, right? Like you know that, that you know, they grew up in church and you went to you know, Easter or you became a Christian later on and every year we celebrate Easter or even if you're not a believer, you know that somehow Easter, resurrection, Jesus, somehow something's going on here, right? So for us, this concept that that Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, lived and then was crucified and then resurrected, for us it's very commonplace. It's like, yeah, duh, we know, know the story, right? But what I want you to catch is for the disciples that day, this came as an absolute and complete and total surprise. Uh, if you, This was shocking. There was nothing in their worldview that had, pre- uh, had prepared them. And this is important. Because, you know, in the last few weeks, we've talked about some of the alternate theories that try to explain uh, what happened in the resurrection. So, so often, if you'll talk to people today about the resurrection of Jesus, they will say things like, well, you know, we are modern people today. And so we, we understand science, and we understand we live in a closed universe, a universe of cause and effect, governed by laws of nature. We know today that things like resurrections don't happen, so we're not really sure what happened back then, but there has to be an alternate explanation. And so we've looked at some of those, like uh, maybe Jesus didn't really die, that he uh, just looked like he was dead. He went into the coma, and then he got revived. We talked about that. Last week, we, we talked about another uh, alternate theory that the women, you know how women are, bad with directions, uh, they were so uh, confused, uh, they were so confused, they went to the wrong tomb. We talked about that theory last week. Uh, one theory we haven't talked about is the hallucination theory or the vision theory, that what happened is that, uh, that what happens, the women went to the tomb and they had this some kind of vision, or maybe uh, Peter had a vision or someone had a vision, they came back and said, I saw Jesus, he's really alive, and, that, and this kind of, everyone kind of bought into this thing, and that's how the movement started. But what I want you to catch is that regardless of, of what the theory is, you know, uh, one of the more modern ones now is that uh, more recent ones has come up as well. You know, uh, it, it wasn't Jesus that died. It was someone who looked like Jesus, and they just got it mixed up. But, you know, whatever the theory is, one thing they all have in common is that they, they, they kind of assume that ancient people are stupid people, Right? And that we're smart people, and we understand science, and we understand how life works, and we understand res- there's nothing, res- but that ancient people weren't very smart. They believed in these legends. They believed in miraculous. And so um, well, they were really expecting this to happen. And, and therefore, then, w- when the rumor gets started, they're, like, quick to believe. And here's what I want you to catch. It's very important, is that as we study ancient history, as we study first century literature, what you'll find is that no one in the first century believed something like this could happen. What you'll find as you study ancient history and literature is that the ancient world, almost everyone believed in life after death, kind of like we, like we do today. Like you, if you go to a funeral, it doesn't matter, believer, non-believer, no one ever says, well, you know, too bad about Fred, but he's dead, he's gone. Like everyone, you know, 
uh, Fred's in a better place, right? In our culture today, we believe, you know, almost everyone in our culture believe, and that's the same way it was in the first century. Most people, that's what they believed that there was life after death. But catch this. They didn't believe in physical life after death. They didn't believe in a resurrection of the body. They believed in immortality of the soul. In fact, the most of the ancient world, first century, had been highly influenced by Greek philosophers. And in Greek philosophy, you would never want to get a new body. Your body is what causes all your problems in life. And so they saw death as the release of the spirit. And so you would go on immortality of the soul, but now you don't have a body. And the, the idea of getting a new body would be not only not believable to them, but it would be not desirable to them. And so what I want you to catch in this, this concept that, well, what happened is a story about the resurrection of a guy uh, and Jesus, and he came back, and then it spread through the ancient world because everyone believes stuff like that. It's the exact opposite. That no one believes, the one exception of anyone in the ancient world who believed in a physical resurrection were the Jews. But catch this, even the Jews, and not all the Jews, but like the Pharisees, probably most of the Jews believed in a resurrection. But catch this, no one believed in the resurrection of the body in the midst of human history. They believed that at the end of time and the kingdom of God came, in power, there would be a resurrection of the dead. Are you with me in this? So, there was n so no one believed in a resurrection. And what this means is that the reaction of the women on that first resurrection morning, where they ran out scared for their lives, and what were the two words? Trembling and bewildered. That they are, they're very typical. That's exactly how all the first followers of Jesus responded. No context for this. In fact, if you were to compare the four gospels and compare the resurrection accounts, what you'd find is there's a lot of similarities and overlap between the four accounts. Now, there's not enough details and time markers in each account to piece together the exact chain of events that happened on resurrection morning. But you can get a general kind of uh, timeline, a general sense, you know. So can we, let, me, let me walk you through that. According to Matthew's gospel, the first thing that happens is bef probably before dawn, because it's before the women get there, and they're, they're coming at dawn, that before dawn, uh, early that Sunday morning, that there was a tremendous earthquake, and then an angel of the Lord came down to the tomb and rolled the stone away. So remember, the angels, you know, you know, very strong. Don't mess with angels. Uh, they're warriors. Uh, and so angel was, now, we're told in Matthew's gospel that the Jewish leadership had gone to the uh, Roman uh, governor Pilate and asked him to station a guard there and to put his seal on it to make sure no one messed with the grave. And so uh, Matthew says that what happened when the angel came down the earthquake, remember, it's the middle of the night. You see the white guy shining there, whatever he looks like. Uh, they freak out, and they head to the Jewish leadership who had engineered the execution of Jesus, and they said, what do we do? And they said, listen, we got we to cover this up fast. We'll pay you a lot of money. If, it, if anyone asks, if this story gets out, just tell them that the disciples came in the middle of the night, 
and, and stole the body while you're sleeping. And we will, if this gets back to the Roman governor, we'll cover for you so you're not executed. Because right? as, you know, as a Roman guard, you don't sleep on the job. Right? Now, what's interesting is in Matthew's gospel, and remember, Matthew's writing it 30 to 40 years after the resurrection, he says this rumor really worked, that it got legs. Because even in Matthew's time, 30 to 40 years later, that that rumor was still kind of, go, it was an alternate explanation of the resurrection. Now, like the other explanations, it doesn't really make any sense. Because first of all, if you're a Roman soldier, the last thing you're going to do is sleep on guard. It's going to cost you your life. And secondly, this stone weighs hundreds of pounds. If the disciples came and pushed the stone away, it's going to wake you up. So it doesn't really make a lot of sense, but that was the story that they gave. Now, what... Be before we leave this first event, earthquake event, angel event, I want to point out one thing that's really interesting. That, you know, I want you to, point, point, to catch that Jesus, the reason the angel pushed the stone away, rolled the stone away, was not to let Jesus out. It was to let the women in. Jesus was already gone. We are told in Luke chapter 24 that when Jesus first showed up to appear to the disciples uh, that Sunday night, resurrection night, that uh, they were very skittish at first. And uh, they, they assumed he was a ghost. That's the only thing in their mind they could think of. And, uh, and so he, he said, no, you, you can touch me, right? He had the wounds in his hands. and so You can touch me. He has a meal with them. And, and he finally overcomes their objections. Uh, so what we're told is that his new body was a very physical body. But on the other hand, it had new capacity. I like to call it version 2.0. Right? And this is really exciting because this is the same body as we're going to get. I'm excited about this. Because he could transport himself through, through space. I don't know about time, but certainly through space. And so we see several examples in the gospel. He just shows up someplace, and then he shows up somewhere else. Sometimes he shows up behind locked doors. And so, so he's got this new capacity, but I want you to catch this. So when the stone was rolled away, that was not so that Jesus could get out. Like he's in there, hey, get me out of here. Uh, like angel comes, okay, Jesus, here you go. You know, that he's gone. The reason the stone is moved, so when the women come, and later that day Peter and John come, they can see that it's, it's gone, okay? So, so first thing that happens that morning, earthquake, angel, stone rolled away, guards flee. Second thing that's happened, all the Gospels say this, is several women go to the grave, the, the tomb, that, that morning. We, just, we see Mark's account of that. Uh, when they get there, stones rolled away, right? And, and they're gonna, all going to see an angel. All, there's all accounts. One or two angels. They see an angel. Uh, and the angel gives them instructions what to do. Instructions are to go back and tell the, the guys to, to meet them in Galilee. So we see that. Uh, in Mark's account, we see they run out scared for their lives. But what we find out in the other accounts is on their way back, they actually run into Jesus. And now their fear turns into joy, right? They, they, they absolutely, Mary Magdalene has a one-on-one -on -one with him. And just, there's a lot of encounters there. And so eventually they're going to make their way back to the disciples and the others, you know, who are hiding out for their lives. And when they get there, here's what I want you to catch. The disciples are not going to take them seriously at all. They're going to write them off as superstitious, crazy women. And I, I choose those words carefully. Like, you know how guys are. <laughs> right? Crazy woman. Yeah. It's that kind of reaction. 
It's interesting because in Luke 24, we have this, this account where that day, later the day, Jesus meets two of his disciples, not the 12, but two of the kind of other disciples, Cleopas and another guy, and they're, they're on a road to Emmaus about seven miles away. Jesus just shows up. They're walking along. I don't know, you know how, how dark it was, but they don't recognize Jesus at first. And he says to him, he says, hey, you guys look depressed. Like, what's going on? And they're like, dude, are you the only one in town who doesn't know what's going on? There's this guy named Jesus, and we, he was an amazing prophet, and we thought he was going to be the Messiah, and then our leaders turned him over uh, to be executed, and, and now he's dead, and we're just bummed because we thought this was it. We thought kingdom of God's coming. And he said, what's crazy is it's been like it's the third day since then, and, 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 and our, some of our women came this morning and told us with some vision that they'd seen, like, oh, whatever. And so we're told that in Luke's gospel later in chapter 24, I want you to see how the men responded to this. There in your note sheet, in Luke 24, it says, when they came back from the tomb, when the women came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11, you know, that they'd seen Jesus, what the angel said and everything. Remember that there's only 11 disciples now because Judas is already gone. And so they tell it to the, the 11 and to all the others. It says, but they did not believe the woman because their words seemed to them like what? Nonsense. It's like ridiculous. People don't rise from the dead. The guy's a corpse. It's over. Accept it. Get over it. It's done. We were wrong. Face the facts. And so when Jesus shows up that first night, one of the things Jesus does is rebuke them for being so slow to believe. But here's what I want you to catch. When people say, hey, well, the reason this story got started is because back then they believed this kind of thing, it's exactly the opposite. That no one expected this and they were incredibly slow to believe it. And so here's what I want you to catch. The only reason they believed it was because of what Luke refers to in Acts chapter 1, he says that when Jesus came, he came with many convincing proofs. And so it was only the convincing proofs that overcame their prejudice that this cannot happen. But once he did overcome their prejudices, it radically changed their lives. Because the resurrection changed everything. And, and so as you look at their lives, he asks the question, what can transform a group of these 11 men who are hiding behind locked doors for fear of the authorities? What can transform them into fearless witnesses of the resurrection over the next 30, 40, 50 years of their life? 10 of those 11 men would not only be beaten and, and persecuted throughout the next 30, 40 years, 10 of the 11 would die for the message of the resurrection, and often, several of them were crucified. For, for, for the message. And so he asked the question, what, what in the world could cause these men to be transformed like that? And the only answer that makes any sense at all is the resurrection was real. And it changed their whole perspective and it had taken away their fear of death because they saw the next life was real. You see? And so for, for us as Christ, it's important for us to understand that these accounts, that they, that they were not like, oh yeah, sure, that's you know, quick to believe. They were the exact opposite. It was only when faced with overwhelming evidence 
that they overcame their prejudices and came to believe. Now, number two, the, the second principle I want to highlight is so important for us as Christ followers to understand is that the resurrection validates Jesus and his message. The resurrection validates Jesus and his message. And this is really important. And I, I want to ask you a question. And it's a rhetorical question. So don't, don't answer it out loud. No show of hands or something. But here's the question. I want you to answer inside your, your head. If, if someone came to you as a, say, a non-believer and said, hey, I know you're a Christian, right? You're a follower of Jesus. Yes, I am. And they asked this question, why do you believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be? And why do you believe in the message of Jesus? The question is, what would you say? Why do you believe that? I think there's, there's a lot of good answers to that question. I mean, you could talk about the difference Jesus has made in your life and how he's transformed your life what your life was like before, what he's like since. You could talk about the authority of scripture and, and how it's been proved reliable over history and archaeology and give some apology. You could talk about answered prayers. There's probably a lot of good answers. But what I want you to catch is the best answer is that I believe in Jesus because of the resurrection. That the resurrection is the ultimate evidence that validates Jesus and his message. And I want you to think with me about this. We're coming now towards the end of the Gospel of Mark, and I want you to think back what we've learned about Jesus and his message. Right? So, so let's go back. You go back to chapter one. Jesus bursts on the scene, and he has this amazing claim. He makes this amazing claim that the kingdom of God that's been promised by the prophets of Israel for a 1,000 years, that there will come a time and a place where God will break into human history and turn all wrongs to right and usher in the golden age of the universe. That that age is near. That was his message. The kingdom of God is near. And then not only did he make that claim, but Jesus began to back up that claim because wherever he went, the power of the coming kingdom was being introduced into time and space. So wherever Jesus went, the prophecies about the kingdom of God were being fulfilled. The eyes of the blind were being opened. Just like the prophet said, the lame were walking, the deaf were hearing. And this new age of grace and forgiveness was being poured out on the land. That Jesus didn't care where you'd come from or what you've done. He only cared where you were going. If you're willing to come under his leadership, you could enter the kingdom of God, repent and believe. And so, so the first half of the Gospel of Mark, we watched wherever Jesus went, people got set free. The power of the kingdom was being unleashed in time and space. The power of the future kingdom of God was breaking into now. People that had been demonized were being set free. Wherever Jesus went, the kingdom went. And when you get to chapter 8, the halfway point in the book, Jesus asks his men, you've had some time now to be with me. Who do you believe that I am? And you remember that Peter has that flash of insight. You are more than just a man. You're more than a great teacher. You're more than a prophet. You're more than a miracle worker. You are the Christ. You're the Messiah. Not only is the kingdom of God near, the king is near. 
And all of a sudden, Peter, uh, Jesus pulls his men aside and said, you're absolutely right, but let me tell you what that means that the king is here. Let me tell you what it means for me to be the Messiah. It's a little different than you think. And he begins to predict that instead of being welcomed by the nation, he's going to be rejected by the nation. Instead of ruling over Rome, he's going to be arrested by Rome and executed by Rome. And then he's going to rise. And this was so far outside their paradigm, they had no way to even understand it. Especially the talk of rising. Mark says they didn't understand at all what he was talking about. And they didn't like the message. And so it seems like they went into a kind of state of denial. Well, you know, Jesus, he's always saying weird things. We don't have, you know, seeds going in a field and, you know, I mean, we don't understand it. And so, you know, I'm sure he's the Messiah. We got that right, you know? And so I'm, I'm sure it's going to work out. It'll all work out. And as they get closer to, Je- to Jerusalem, Jesus begins to impact more. He says, the reason I'm going to die is for a ransom for your sins, to set you free. And the night before he's arrested, he said, this death, my blood, it's going to be like a new covenant that's going to usher in this new era of the human race. You can enter into a new relationship with God through my death. And they're still not getting it. On that Thursday night, they're still thinking that the kingdom's about to break out in power. They're still arguing at the Last Supper of who was the greatest. Who gets the corner office? Who should be secretary of state? Who should be, you know, secretary of this or that? They're not getting it. And when Jesus was arrested and executed, their whole world came to an end. And in a moment, everything they believed about Jesus appeared wrong. Everything they believed about the kingdom of God was wrong. Everything he taught, wrong. One thing you know about a Messiah, he doesn't lose, he wins, certainly doesn't get nailed to a Roman cross under the curse of God. The religious leaders must have been right, we've been deceived, I don't know how it happened, I don't know what, and that Saturday, they're crying their eyes out. And here's what I want you to catch. Everything changed the moment Jesus walked into the room that Sunday night and said, hand me some fish. And they're extremely skeptical. But after many convincing proofs, they overcame their skepticism, their paradigm, and said it's true. And here's what I want you to catch. With the resurrection of Jesus, it validated two things. It validated that Jesus was who they believed he was, he claimed to be. But it also validated his message about the kingdom of God. It validated everything we've learned in this series about the kingdom of God. It validated he is who he claims to be, and it validated that the kingdom of God is breaking into time and space and is still happening today, and it's expanding. And wherever the movement of Jesus goes, the kingdom of God is breaking in. And it's validated his message that his death wasn't an accident, that it was on purpose, and that through his death, there's a ransom that we can be set free, his life for our life, and it validates that we enter in this new covenant with God through his blood. And it validates his message. He's coming back to restore all wrongs to right. See, the resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate signature of God on the life of Jesus that validates who he is and his message is true. 
There in your note sheet, this is what the Apostle Paul, the way he puts it in Romans chapter 1. Uh, Paul's writing to the Romans, uh, the church in Rome. Uh, he's talking about his calling as an apostle, as a messenger of the gospel. And so in this opening couple of verses, he's describing what the gospel, the message of Jesus is about. And here's how he puts it. He says, this gospel, he promised, God promised, beforehand, in other words, in the Old Testament, uh, through the prophets over the thousand years, beforehand, in, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son. So the gospel is about his son. Catch this, who as, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David. I just as prophesied the Messiah, the great king, would be from the, the line of David. And who through the spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit, was declared with power to be the son of God by his what? His resurrection from the dead. You see what Paul's saying? He's saying that it's by the resurrection that God is putting his signature on Jesus, saying, this is my son, and he is the great king, but he's more than the great king of Israel. He is the son of God, made out of God's stuff, and more than that, he's the Lord of all creation. He's the ruler of all creation. So he says, he goes on and says, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so, so the resurrection is God's signature on the life of Jesus, that, that he is who he claims to be, and that his message is true. And so uh, what this does is it forces us to make some decisions, doesn't it? Uh, I, I like the way Tim Keller puts it uh, in his book, The Reason for God. Tim is a famous pastor in New York City, kind of an apologist for the faith. And there in your note sheet, I put this quote down from him. This is, this is great stuff. He says, you know, sometimes people approach me and they say, I really struggle with this aspect of Christian teaching. Now, you know, the, you know what this is right, right? You, you understand this, right? Because you have people come up to you and they say, yeah, I, really, I really struggle with this whole thing of homosexuality being, being wrong. I just can't buy that. Or I, I struggle with this whole sexual ethic thing. Or I struggle with this idea that there's only one way to God. Or I struggle with the idea that through his death we're forgiven. It seems so barbaric. I, I, struggle with, I struggle with the Bible's really true or whatever the thing is, right? So we, we understand this. So he says, so sometimes people approach me and they say, I really struggle with this aspect of Christian teaching. He said, I like this part of Christian belief. Right? So, you know, God is love. Uh, you know, that uh, I love God, love people. You know, that kind of thing. So he says, I, I, um, I, I, like, um, I like this part of Christian belief, but I don't think I can accept that part. And he says, I usually respond, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything he said? See, the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether he rose from the dead. So I want you to catch this moment. The, the resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin of Christianity. Like, like without the resurrection, everything else we believe unravels. Like he either rose from the dead and is the son of God, the king of creation, the creator of the universe, or he didn't rise from the dead and we should all pack it up and go home. There is no middle ground. And so the resurrection of Jesus impinges on us. The, the resurrection of Jesus forces us to make some decisions. Like for example, if you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, the resurrection impinges on your life. 
Because God is putting his signature on his son. He's saying, this is the guy. What he claimed about himself is true. He is God in the flesh. He is the son of God. He is the creator of the universe. He is the ruler of creation. And he is the judge of all the earth. And one day you will stand before him and give an account for your life. And so what are you going to do with that? Are you going to embrace that reality, get on your knees, repent of ruling your own life, ask Jesus to forgive you, receive his gift of total amnesty for all crimes against the kingdom, receive the gift of his spirit, let him love on you and teach you how to live life the way you were created to live it and save a place for you, not just in this life, but the next life? Or are you gonna reject God's signature and say, I don't want to follow him and remain under the judgment of God, a rebel rebelling against the king of creation. You see? See, the resurrection forces you to make a decision. Now let's talk with us who are Christians here. We're Christ followers. And let me ask you a question. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? And for most of you, I think, yes, I do. I, I believe in his life, his death, and his resurrection. And here's my question. Do you understand the implications of that? Because if you say you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, it means you believe that God has validated him as the son of God and the Lord of all creation. And catch this, that by the resurrection, not just Jesus is validated, but all of his teaching is validated. So think through the gospel of Mark, our relationship with God. How we're to do relationships with one another. What he's taught us about marriage, what he's taught us about divorce, what he's taught us about sexual ethics, what he's taught us about money, what he's taught us about priorities and prayer. If you tell me you believe in the resurrection, my question is, are you listening to the teaching of Jesus? Are you with me? Because often as Christians, we, ought, we operate as functional atheists. We say we believe in the resurrection, but our lives don't reflect it. Are you with me? Because we say we, we believe in the resurrection, which by definition says, I believe in Jesus. He's the king of creation. He's the son of God. He speaks with the authority of God. Everything he said is true. Everything he said is right. He loves us. He's got a plan for his life. And he's laid out the path to life. And then I, my next question is, if you believe that, are you living it? Are you living it? Because if you say, I believe in the resurrection, but I'm picking and choosing which of Jesus' teaching I, I follow, then what you're telling me is you don't really believe in the resurrection yet. You don't understand the resurrection. Because catch this, Jesus rose from the dead the first fruits of a new creation. And when he rose from the dead, he didn't just rise for himself, he rose for you. And he rose so that you could die to your old life and rise with him to a new life through the power of the Spirit. And it's exactly what the Bible says, right? We are baptized with him so we be shared with him in his death that we might rise with him through the power of the Spirit to newness of life. And so God's got a plan for your life that only when we surrender to the validation of the resurrection 
that validates who Jesus is and his teaching is true, do we experience that life? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we today just thank you for the resurrection and what it means for our lives, what it means for human history, what it means for the restoration of all creation. And Lord, as we come today, we want to reflect on that. And while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I want to give you a chance to respond to this. So maybe you're here today, you're not yet a follower of Jesus. You've never really thought of the resurrection this way, but as I've kind of been unpacking it, it's just gotten so clear to you who Jesus is. And you want in. You don't want to be a rebel anymore. You don't want to be under the judgment. You want to receive this gift of amnesty. You want to be restored in your relationship with God. You want to be walking with God. You want to experience his plan for your life. You want to be forgiven, empowered by his spirit, ready to follow him, uh, ready for the next life. And if that's you, I want to give you a chance right now to bow the knee and give your life to Christ and to be welcomed into his kingdom. He doesn't care where you've come from or what you've done. It's all about where you're going. He's, he's died for you as a ransom to set you free from your past. And so as our heads are bowed, I'm going to pray a very simple prayer. And if this expresses the desire of your heart, I encourage you to pray along with me in your heart and mind. And God will hear. If you're sincere, he'll hear. And he'll come in and begin to change your life. And you'll, you'll, you'll come into the kingdom. And so I'm going to pray, dear Jesus, I ask you into my life. I ask you to forgive me for all crimes against your kingdom. And I pray that you would fill me with your spirit. Teach me how to follow you and prepare me for the life that's coming. And while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if you just pray that, first of all, I want to welcome you to the kingdom that you've entered in. Jesus has heard that. He's come into your life. And, and I'd encourage you, what I'd ask you to do is I want to help you take kind of some first steps in your new walk with Christ. And so in a few minutes, we'll be worshiping together. We'll be taking the offering. And inside your program is a little card called the Connect Card. And it's a little registration card. You can fill out the front and then back. Just write me a note and say, Mike, I prayed the prayer. And I'll know exactly what you meant. And I'll send you a letter this week just to hear some first steps in your new relationship with Jesus. And then while our heads are, are bowed and our eyes are closed, I want to talk to you, my brothers and sisters, and I want to ask you, do you believe in the resurrection? And do you believe that he died for you so you can rise to a whole new life? And is there an area of your life you've been picking and choosing? Maybe it's money, you know, maybe it's your finances, maybe it's a, a relational thing, maybe it's a sexual thing, maybe it's an attitude, maybe it's a bitterness, but something that you're not listening to the teaching of Jesus, you're blowing him off. You're treating him as if he's a cosmic consultant. You pick and choose. And today, you've just, God's speaking to you, and you know it. He's calling you home, and he wants to set you free. He wants to love on you, but you have to let go, and you have to come under his leadership. And as we go into this final worship song, as we receive our offerings, I want to encourage you, as we talk about surrendering our life, I want to ask you just to go before the Lord. And if there's something there the Holy Spirit's putting on your heart, surrender it, and get back in right relationships so he can bless and lead your life. And so, Lord, as we come now, as we worship you, as we seek you as a church, as we surrender, we pray you'd meet us now in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we worship. And that's what the resurrection is all about, that if the resurrection is true, that it means that our only response is, Lord, have your way, because you are clearly the king of creation. You are the son of God. You're God in the flesh. You've come to instruct us, to teach us the path of life. And so how foolish would it be to resist the God who created us, who's brighter than all of us put together by a million times over? 
Like how foolish would it be to continue to choose our way when you've got the creator of the universe saying this is the path of life. And so, so in Jesus, we have God in the flesh who's come to us to say this is the way. This is the way. It's path of life. Sometimes that path is going to make sense to us right away. Other times it's going to be hard. It's going to require hard decisions. But only a fool would trust himself instead of trusting someone who's risen from the dead. Right? Either he rose from the dead and we have to listen to everything he said, or he didn't rise from the dead and we don't have to listen to anything he said. Amen? Amen. So may this be a week that you live in the power of the resurrection. He died and rose so you could rise with him to a whole new life. He came to give you life. May this be a week you live your life in the power of the resurrection. As the apostle Paul writes in Colossians 3, you've died with Christ. Your life is hidden with him in God. And when he's revealed, you will be revealed with him in glory because he is your life. May this week you experience the resurrection life of Jesus in new ways as you listen and follow his leading. Don't forget, next week, wrap up the whole series. It's going to be a great time together as we look at this epilogue, the final passage in the Gospel of Mark. Don't forget, after the service, we've got prayer down here to my right in both the summit and over here in our uh, interim worship center. And uh, we'll see you next week. God bless you guys. Have a great week.